preaching is an ineffective and outdated form of communication. At least that's what some people think. And in fact, I have heard this very statement from the lips of someone when I attended a youth ministry conference some years ago. In what I thought was ironically proclamatory style, this person boldly proclaimed that the day of preaching is dead. And we were interested, of course, for his rationale for this, and it seemed that it was not so much biblical as pragmatic. He said that preaching is a monologue. He said that preaching is one-way traffic. And he said that preaching is really a waterfall of words that cascades from the pulpit down into the pew, virtually drowning the unfortunate listeners. What he said that we need is dialogue, not declaration. And he said that Q&A was in. And he said that discussion groups are in. And he said that story sharing was okay. But he also said that preaching is out the back door. It is an increasingly popular call today, not only from out with the church, but particularly from within its walls. And it is, I believe, a unfortunate call. Not only does it overlook the obvious place that preaching has in Scripture, but it is in fact built upon a questionable assumption. This assumption that preaching is a monologue. I say this not because I've studied some books on communication theory, you understand. But because within the Bible, preaching is itself described this way. Regardless of whether there is verbal interaction, there is never a case of it being one-way traffic. How do we know this? Well, Jesus Christ said as much. Indeed, on one occasion, and we've just read about it together, Jesus lifted the lid on the preaching experience. And what Jesus said was that whatever the external appearance, whenever the preacher preaches, there is invariably a response in the hearts of the hearers. It may be unspoken, it may be unsounded, but it is unmistakable. And it is critical what the response of your heart and my heart is to that word. The issue is not just what of preaching today, but what of hearing today. So I'd like you to turn again with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. And this sermon is sort of about the two sides. It's about the speaking, it's about the hearing. But I think the emphasis in this chapter is especially on the hearing. And so I've titled this sermon, Listen Up. Listen up. We need to listen carefully, and we need to carefully consider how we listen. I knew this would be a long day, so I thought I should keep it simple, at least for myself, and simple for you. So I've got two very basic points. First of all, the preacher, and secondly, 
the hearer. And naturally, we're going to begin with the preacher. For though this passage is mainly about hearing, it is founded upon the prior event of preaching. Jesus does not begin, you notice, with hearing. He gets to that in verse 4. But he begins with preaching in verse 1. Jesus understands something very obvious, that it is only through the preaching and the communication of the message of the gospel that hearing is possible. It doesn't take a high degree in theology to grasp. It doesn't take a degree in logic to understand this. That without the faithful preaching of God's word, there can be no fruitful hearing. Sinners need speakers like you and like me to take the gospel of the Savior's love to them. I was just moved on Friday night. Someone was showing me a video about some of the most unreached countries on the planet. And there were these horrible statistics coming up on the screen about how many millions of people lived in these places And then the other statistics that there were virtually no Christians in these places. And I have to tell you, these are the most the toughest and the most inaccessible and the most dangerous places for the Christian to go. And yet the verse came up on the screen. Romans 11 verse 14. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Can you answer that question without the logical answer? They cannot. You see, preaching, and in fact any sharing of the gospel, is not some romantic notion. It's not some people that just do it because they like the idea of doing it. People cannot believe unless we preach. This person was sharing with me, there was a picture of people walking up and down one of these main streets. It was full of idols in the background. And he said that when he had been visiting Asia, most of the people he spoke to hadn't even heard the name of Jesus. How can they believe unless they have heard his name? And it's a challenge to some of you here. Maybe some of you younger people. We can't guarantee safety. But we can guarantee that these people won't be saved if some of you don't go with our prayers and our support. People need preachers. That's why Jesus, he was more than a healer of the sick. And he was more than a mentor of disciples. And he was more than a miracle worker. And he was even more than something we believe is gloriously true in this church. A substitute for our sin. Who died in our place. As well as all these things, Jesus was a preacher. And it's something we often overlook as we reminisce and as we reconstruct the key elements in the ministry of Jesus. He was a preacher. Let me give you a little heads up on something. Some people say that Paul was a preacher, the Apostle Paul, but Jesus just told stories. That's what they say. I think it's to get around this preaching thing today. They say that Paul preached, but I model my ministry on Jesus. And you know, Jesus, he just told stories. Well, he did tell stories, of course. But he did more than just tell stories. Just look at verse 1. It says that Jesus 
not Paul, traveled around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was preaching. Do you remember back in chapter 4? Jesus was healing people in this particular town. And naturally, they wanted Jesus for themselves. They wanted to keep him for themselves. And he begged Jesus to stay with them. And do you recall what Jesus said to them? He said, this is Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns also. Because, listen to this, this is why I was sent. And the next verse says that he kept on preaching. In the synagogues of Judea, Jesus was a preacher. He was committed to proclaiming and declaring the message of the kingdom of God. And as we consider this, I would like to ask three very simple questions about Jesus preaching. What was his method in preaching? What was his message in preaching? And what was his support structure as he proclaimed the Word of God. I think this will be relevant not only to people who preach, but indeed to all of us, because all of us, in a sense, take out the gospel and we have a job to declare it. So, first of all, his method in verse 1. There's so much that we would like to know about the methodology of Jesus preaching, isn't there? How long did Jesus preach for? Did he give 10 minute sermonettes? Was it 45 minutes or was it an hour and a half slog? We don't always know. Did he use two points or three points or no points? And how many subpoints did he have? We don't really know. The Bible is mostly silent on the method of his preaching. But what we do get are these little snippets, these very interesting little nuggets. And what we read in verse 1 is something of his method that he traveled about from, here it is, one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news. What does that tell us about the method of Jesus preaching? I think very simply this, that Jesus preached without discrimination to the maximum amount of people possible. See, Peter was saying, this gospel is a gospel that is good news of great joy for all people. And Jesus himself, this is, was something that was in his mind and in his ministry. And this is reflected in the way that Jesus goes from one town and one village to the next. You notice that, those little phrases. He doesn't have preferential places. He goes to the large centers of population, the towns, But he also goes to the little shack villages where there's maybe only 10 people or 20 people, handfuls, and he shares the gospel with them. You see, wherever there is people, there are sinners who need speakers, who need the gospel. And in a sense, it's very basic, but this needs to be our strategy today as a church. We need to think perhaps more about going out than just bringing people in, though it's great if we can do that. Most of the people won't come in. We need to go out to them. And we need to realize, too, that there are no little places and there are no little people. There is no part of this city, wherever you happen to live, that doesn't need Christ. And there's no place in Scotland, wherever you're from. There's no place in Europe. No place in this world where it's too insignificant for you to be there as an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His method, I think, was indiscriminate preaching. What was his message, secondly? Well, read it together in verse 1. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And this is a reminder that Jesus had a very specific and narrow, you might say, message. Jesus did not, as we sometimes see of the politicians, get off message. Jesus was always on message. And he was always on the same theme. In fact, if you were following Jesus around, if you were a sort of groupy sermon taster of the Lord Jesus' sermons, you might have thought he was a bit repetitive. Because it was the kingdom, and it was the kingdom, and it was the kingdom. Every time. And he did not get sidetracked. He did not psychologize. And he did not politicize. And he did not moralize. Though he could have said all sorts of interesting things on these matters. No, he gave them the gospel. He gave them the message of the kingdom. See, this is what people need, isn't it? It's not what people want. The average unbeliever in Edinburgh is not walking up and down Princess Street thinking, I need a saviour. They're not thinking that they need the gospel. And there's all sorts of things that they want that we can provide for them. They want to be financially better off. And and maybe we can give them some thoughts on how to do that. And they they want to have better relationships in, in marriage. And that's a very commendable thing. And we want to help them to do that. But you see, if we do all of these things and we don't proclaim this essential message, we are getting off message. What they need is the gospel. Who's going to tell them? Are we going to be those who tell them that there's a creator they've scorned and there's a savior who has come into the world because of the father's love that they might trust in him for salvation? That was Jesus' message. We've seen his method. But thirdly, and this is just a very beautiful point, only Luke inserts, actually, these first three verses of all the Gospels. And it's just a beautiful thing that he next has, and that is the support structure of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, as I said, he's essentially going out on a preaching tour. This is the last tour before he will head straight to Jerusalem with his face set like a flint. And of course, he's going to be on the road for several weeks, maybe several months. And Jesus, he's fully God, but he is also fully human. And he needs support. Just like those of you who are evangelists and on the road, you need support. You need people who are helping you along. We read that the twelve were with him, verse 1 says. So the problem was even bigger. Because they had given up their nets and they had given up their tax booths. And Jesus had given up his carpentry work. And therefore there was 13 mouths to feed. And there was no income. And then we're told this very lovely thing. That there were women, verses 2 and 3, who were helping to support them out of their own means. Look at such prominence to women in his gospel. The men, they are doing all the wrong sorts of stuff. And we see them betraying Jesus and deserting Jesus, even the the twelve. And yet the women are there at the cross, witnessing the whole thing. They're there, even some of these women, we'll find out later, 
at the tomb watching him as he is buried. They are there on the resurrection morning. What prominence is given to women here? And these women, evidently with some financial clout, are helping to support Jesus. They have been saved and rescued by him and now they are serving him. Three of them are named. I can't go into it in great depth, but let's just touch on them. There is Mary. Mary has been demon-possessed, really in a terrible state, seven demons. And maybe Mary is a reminder to us that those who are most radically delivered want to radically serve the Savior. And there's Joanna. All that we learn about Joanna is that she was the wife of a prominent official, the manager of Herod's household. And it's perhaps a reminder to us that God saves the up and out as well as the down and out. It's not just the person in the gutter. It's the person with the BMW and the person with influence that Jesus is out to reach. And then there's Susanna. And actually, we know nothing about Susanna except for her name. I was just thinking maybe it's a reminder to us that God notes and God records even the, what seemed to us, insignificant acts of service. And this lady's name is simply recorded that she served Jesus. What a privilege it is to serve him. They are exemplars of service to Christ. And they are also a reminder to us, I think, that preaching is a team ministry. We sometimes say that, that preaching is a team ministry, and you can get the wrong idea about that. The preaching team, uh, you you say, oh, that's Peter and Rodney and, and James and so on. That's not the preaching team. They may be the people that do most of the preaching, but it's not the whole team. In fact, the team is wider than that. The congregation are part of the preaching team. We cannot do what we do without your support, without your encouragement in all sorts of ways. It's a team ministry. And what an appropriate reminder to me today when I feel something of that. Jesus gave such prominence to preaching. And oh, that God in our day would revive a commitment to preaching And that he would raise up many more faithful young preachers or middle-aged preachers or older-aged preachers who are called into the ministry. This is something that's, I think, a little bit of a burden among the leadership in this church at the moment. is perhaps the lack of preachers that are coming through in a congregation of our size. Some smaller churches are raising up many more men. Now, of course... We can't create preachers. God calls preachers. God makes preachers. We can nurture them. But we really need to be praying about this, I think, as a church. So many churches in Scotland without even a preacher in the pulpit. And many others who have those who preach all sorts of ideas, but not the word of truth. Reading this week, a very exciting book, I think, it's... It's actually called The Expository Genius of John Calvin. And whatever theological persuasion you come from, I think we could all say Calvin was a great preacher and he was certainly a great expositor of Scripture. In this book, it's not just an academic study of some dusty old figure. The purpose of the writer, Steve Lawson, is that this will inspire and encourage 
to raise up a particular kind of preacher. He closes the book with a quote that I just found so challenging and and really something of a prayer. I wanted to share it with you. This is actually a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher. Here's what Spurgeon said or prayed. We want again Luther's, Calvin's, Bunyan's, Whitfield's. If you don't know, these are great preachers. Men fit to mark errors whose names breathe terror in our foemen's ears. We have dire need of such. Whence will they come to us? They are the gifts of Jesus Christ to the church and will come in due time. He has the power to give us back again a golden age of preachers. And when the good old truth is once more preached by men whose lips are touched as with a live coal from off the altar, this shall be the instrument in the hand of the Spirit for bringing about a great and thorough revival of religion in the land. I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God will despise her. It has been through the ministry, this ministry, that the Lord has always been pleased to revive and bless his church. That's the preacher. The preacher. We must move on quickly because I'm running over time. The hearer, secondly, verses 4 through 15. Preaching is indispensable, but hearing is critical. You can have Calvin. You can have Jonathan Edwards. Dare I even say, you could have Jesus himself preaching a sermon here tonight, yet you could still have an unproductive outcome. Jesus actually had many people who rejected his message because... Though much depends on the preacher, not all depends on him. It is an interface. It is an interaction, you see. And what Jesus explains in this parable, sometimes this is called the parable of the sower, it's really the parable of the soils. He explains that there are four soils. There are four ways to hear tonight. Jesus says in verse 12 that the soil represents the heart. And he says in verse 13 that the soil represents the hearing. The soil, you might say, represents the heart of the hearer, the heart of hearing. And as we consider these four soils, just briefly now, I'd like to give you a heads up that you are meant to ask yourself, which soil am I? You're meant to ask that. Jesus said in verse 18, which we read, consider carefully how you hear. That's the punchline. You're meant to think it through. So first of all, I'd like to ask you, are you hard soil? Are you hard soil to the seed of God's word? Are you quite literally hard of hearing? Is your hearing, spiritually speaking, deaf to God's word? Is your heart closed off and shut off, just impenetrable to the truth of God's word? Jesus said that some hearts would be rock hard. He described it, in fact, as a seed which fell along the path, which was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Now, you shouldn't think of Scottish fields here. This is Palestinian culture. It's a much more hot climate than we are used to. And it was a much less receptive soil, generally speaking. The fields are, are not so much square. They are long and they are narrow. And they are crisscrossed by paths that run through the fields. In these days when roads were less sophisticated, often the paths were the roads as they ran alongside the fields and even through 
the field itself. You've got that little incident in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, which makes sense in light of that, that Jesus and the disciples are walking through the cornfield and they're picking bits of grain. And you know, we don't need to subscribe to Farmers Weekly, that's the key magazine in farming, to understand what happened to the soil on the path. It was trampled on, says Luke. And therefore the ground... And like the soil around it, it would be sort of flattened down as it was trampled on. And then the earth would become compact. And the sun would literally bake that particular plot until it solidified. It was almost like concrete beneath your feet. And therefore, it's no surprise when the seed falls on that soil, it just lies on the surface. And it's trampled on. The seed is trampled on now. And the birds of the air come and they snatch up the seed. Jesus explains later that this is like the devil as he comes to steal away the word. As active as any other member in any worship service, the devil is active. He's ready to steal away the truth. And this describes so many people that we see. So many people fit this description of verse 12. They hear But the word doesn't penetrate at all. There is no response, and the devil just snatches it away. And therefore, this is terrible, really. They do not believe and be saved. Ever shared the gospel with someone till your lips turn blue? And there's just no response? Ever explained and re-explained the truth? And had long and lengthy conversations about the gospel till you thought they had got it? till your head hurts, and they still don't get it. Maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe you've attended Alpha courses. Maybe you've been to CE courses twice, or was it three times? And you've had late-night chats. And again and again, you keep saying, I don't get it. Could you explain some more? And you're bulletproof to the Word of God. You're hard soil. The gospel changes everyone else around you, but it never seems to penetrate your heart. Praise God that he can take hearts of stone and he can change them for hearts of flesh. And that's our prayer for you, my prayer for you this evening. Secondly, the shallow soil. Are you the second ground type in verse 6, which is shallow and superficial, and which is therefore sterile and unproductive? Verse 6, some seed fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Now, this isn't a field that's full of obvious protruding rocks. All right? This isn't just bad farming. You know, he should have seen these things. In Palestinian hill country, there was a common kind of soil. It was very, very thin, the top soil. And just beneath the surface, there was this limestone bedrock. And if you hadn't examined under the soil, you didn't even know it was there. And so when the seed went into that particular patch, it could not grow down because the rock was there. And it was particularly hot with the sun heating up that area. And and it would spring up immediately. And the farmer thought, wow, it's the first fruits of the crop. But then, says Jesus, because there is no root, there is therefore no moisture getting to the plant. And as the heat of the noonday sun beats upon it, it withers just as fast. This is a superficial response to the gospel. This is the short-term response to the gospel. These are the people that make a fast start, it seems. 
but they end up a failed crop. These are the people that spring up first and spring up highest, but they also are the first to fall down. Jesus says, verse 13, those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. These are the people that make the immediate response, but the purely emotional response. And yet there's no root system beneath it. They run up to the preacher after the service. They say their life has been changed. They fill out the card. They put their hand in the air and they pray the prayer. And then the next month they're baptized and everyone celebrates with them. And then two months later, somebody says, what happened to so-and-so? And nobody's got a clue what happened to them. Jesus says, here's what happened. There was emotion without established faith. It's not that emotion is wrong per se, but there has to be a root system beneath it. I'm trying to think of an illustration for this. This is maybe quite bad, but I, I don't like coffee particularly. However, when I do indulge, I like cappuccino coffee. I really like the, the layer of cream on the top. It's the best bit of the coffee. But... Here's the thing, however nice the froth is, when I get through that top layer, I expect some coffee down there. I expect something substantial or I'll be going for a refund or maybe another kind of cappuccino. Well, here's the thing, however nice the froth of emotion in the Christian life, there has to be some substance underneath the surface. Emotion is the cream of the Christian life, but there has to be something more substantial Beneath it. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And the difference, verse 13, is simply this that in the, here's how you know, in the time of testing, they fall away. How do you know if your response is purely emotional or not? When the time of pressure comes on your Christian life, you will stand. You will not fall because you have roots. Let's move on to the third soil, which is thorny soil. Maybe the other two soils don't explain you. Maybe this one does. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns and it grew up and it choked the plants. I've uh, just got the keys to a new house and I've been checking out the back garden of it and there are all these enormous, huge plants and there is some weeding to do, but the weeds are relatively small. So I might need to do something with the plants. The weeds look fairly simple, even for me. However, in this culture, the weeds, you need to think of a different kind of thing here. These were sizable and these were colorful and and they could even grow up to, uh, some of them, six feet, almost the height of a human person. And of course, they would take up enormous moisture from the soil and a lot of physical space. And the problem is this. The ground cannot sustain both the weed and the seed. There's restricted capacity for life, the life that can be supported. And the thorny weed, unfortunately, is stronger and it wins out. Jesus says, verse 14, this is those who hear and they go on their way and they're choked by life's worries, riches and pleasure. This is the person whose profession doesn't last because the worries of this life, their concerns and their fears come to dominate them so that they cannot have a place for God's grace in their life. Or riches come in, the treasures of this world, the high salary, the the pursuit of of a nice car, the sought-after promotion just gets in the way of God's Word in their life. 
And of course, there's the issue of pleasures. Not necessarily always sinful pleasures, maybe even good things, but, but affections for things which come in and crowd God out. We know the people who say, after we've explained the gospel to them, I would lose a lot to become a Christian. And what they mean is they would lose riches and they would lose certain pleasures if they followed Christ. And we need to say to them, at at one level, they're right, of course. They will lose certain worldly things, but they will also lose so much more. Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. It's a funny thing. You lose all the things in the world, but you gain something that lasts beyond this world. Maybe not be like this shallow soil. Maybe not be like Demas, one of Paul's companions who was with him in the beginning, 2 Timothy 4.10, and yet Paul could say with an aching heart, Demas has deserted me because he fell in love with this present world. May that not be said of us. May we be the good soil. Verse 8, isn't this a beautiful phrase? Still other seed. Isn't it great that there is still other seed and that there is still other soil? And it fell in good soil. What makes this soil so good? Well, Jesus doesn't explain it so much. He does say that this person has a noble heart. And it may mean that what Jesus simply means is that this soil has none of the previous impediments. It's simply open to God. The surface isn't hard. The soil isn't shallow. And there is no foreign element that's squeezing the life out of what is planted. And therefore it came up and it yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. This is those, verse 15, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. There is fruit in this person's life. That is the essential characteristic of someone who is a Christian. The fruit proves the root. Peter quoted this this morning. By their fruits, you shall know them. We often say it like this. We say, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And we might even go further and say that the evidence of the fact that we are saved is that the good works and the fruit comes forth. And in fact, this is very, very fruitful. Unlike the other versions of this parable in Mark and in Matthew, there's no mention here of the lower yields, the 30, 60 times what was sown. This is a hundred times yield. This was an extremely rare and productive yield. And I think the emphasis here is that those of us who are Christians, if we are Christians, people shouldn't be scurrying around under leaves. People shouldn't have to examine you very, very closely to see, is she or is she not a Christian? It should be obvious. Not faultless, but fruitful. And this is something that we should press on with. There's no excess with regards to the fruitful character that God wants. The good heart, the good hearer, is the soil God wants, not the hard soil, not the shallow soil not the thorny soil. I wonder this evening, which soil are you? 
And I wonder as you think of those around you who you would long to come to Christ, which soil might represent them? Because if you know what the issue is, you can start to pray towards that. Lord, remove that thorn from their heart. Now, as we conclude, and we're running a little over time, I'll try and be very brief. I want to just finish with two things for two groups of people. First of all, I want to say something to those of you who are good soil. And what I want to say is very simply this. You are immensely privileged. You are immensely privileged to be good soil. I think that's what Jesus is saying in verse 10, which we just skipped over. Jesus says, in effect, you are privileged to know what you know. He's speaking to his disciples. And to believe what you believe. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. Think about that. They've been given to you. He's saying, in effect, you did not figure this out. He's saying, you didn't come to this by your own wisdom your own clever understanding. That's what you could think. I'm just better soil than them. You know, I, I hear just a little bit clearer than they did. He says, no, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. And you know, if you understand the gospel, and if you believe the gospel tonight, you must understand that that believing is a gift. The gift of faith. Maybe revel in that aspect of God's grace. And if you are not good soil, if you know you are not, if the Spirit of God is convicting you of that, then I want to say to you that you are in a position of immense peril, an immense danger. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10, speaking of those who have not received the word fruitfully. He says, to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not hear. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. The context is that the people have rejected God's word. And as a result, Jesus says, and Isaiah says, God hardens their heart further. It comes in that order. It's important to see that. They reject God. God hardens their heart further. And so he sends Isaiah to them. And he says, go, tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be seeing but never perceiving. You want to close your ears and shut your eyes? I will keep them closed. It is a terrible promise of judgment to those who would trample the promise of God and the grace of God underfoot. You know, this kind of thing stops us from being presumptuous. It's so easy to hear this kind of sermon and think, you know, I'm, I am one of the first three soils. But you know, at some stage, at some later point in my life, I'm going to put it right. I'm going to shift into category number four. Listen, don't be so sure. You may not be in a position to do so. That's what Jesus is saying. You may be so deaf and so blind that you cannot even hear God's word or see the glory of God. And so the challenge tonight is very simple. You need to stop plugging your ears and you need to stop playing games. And you need to listen up and receive the word of God that can save you. Let me just pray. Father, we pray now for every person in this room that we may hear clearly your voice and your call. We thank you that you've spoken clearly in the person of your son. Your voice, Father, could not be more clear. It could not be more compelling. But Lord, we need you to melt our hard hearts and to unstop our ears so that we may hear your voice and respond. Lord, would you do that in some heart here tonight? 
Do not let the evil one snatch away the seed of God's word. And we pray, Father, for those of us who are your children, that we might be productive soil, even as your word is implanted in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.